Welcome to History for the Curious. I'm Mena Reisner, and I host the internationally renowned lecturer, dynamic historian, and tour guide, Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Experience our history, confront dilemmas, and reveal the untold stories of 3,000 years of Jewish heritage, from Paris to Cairo, from the Russian Tsar to Maimonides, and from the Sinai Revelation to the French Revolution. Join the fastest growing Jewish history podcast in the world by subscribing to this channel and discovering the events that have shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back to what was originally planned to be our 100th episode special with guest speaker Rabbi Warren Jacobson, and the interview we had with him was actually recorded three weeks ago. However, the topic, which is mysterious nefesh in Judaism, is obviously very relevant to the tragic ongoing situation in Israel, where Jews, both during the day of Shemini Atzeres, the 7th of October, and ongoing, have carried out remarkable acts of self-sacrifice. So the talk is very much still relevant. However, we put out the two podcasts before um, due to the ongoing situation. Rabbi Hirsch will be looking at this element of mysterious nefesh in relation to the situation we face in Eretz Yisrael currently. Yes, so perhaps to introduce the whole concept of mysterious nefesh, a literal translation of which is self-sacrifice, we need perhaps to define the difference between emunah and mysterious nefesh. Often we use the, the, these terms interchangeably, but when they're being used alongside each other, they do have different outcomes or meanings. Emuna is generally about something that exists or has happened in the past, and it's the idea of living with the past, accepting it, accepting how it will dictate the future, and often when I can't do anything about it, for example, when a loss was involved, or it is a belief in something, animamin, faith. And in this regard, it is mostly passive, requiring enormous effort, obviously, a whole life's work, but it is a state of mind, of heart, of attitude. Messiris Nefesh is deciding to act in a particular way in a given situation. The ultimate expression being the mitzvah to be Moser Nefesh, literally, give up my life, Al-Kiddush Hashem. But many other smaller stops exist along the way. And sometimes they can seem almost insignificant, but they are part of an active decision and action on my behalf. I'll give you a small example which illustrates this. There was a rich businessman who regrettably refused Rubnosnitzvi Finkel's request for a large donation to the Mir. And he said, you know, I can't. To which Rubnosnitzvi answered, I can't either, but I do anyway. That's Messiris Nefesh. At its highest level, and at the earliest point of our Jewish journey through history, there's Akedas Yitzchok, which is the quintessential example of what religious life demands of us to give up your life. So if that's the ultimate sacrifice, it's giving up one's life. I mean, the Arabs do that too. Okay, so there are many terrorists who are willing to kill themselves for Allah. And we mentioned in the first of these three podcasts that Yishmael has this ability at some level. But what differentiates them from a Jew who is ready to die for God is that Messiris Nefesh has nothing to do with what you are willing to sacrifice, even if, if it is your, your life. 
In fact, especially if you're sacrificing it ultimately for rewards for your own self, then it becomes almost a selfish act. It's the very opposite of Messiris Nefesh. To understand the difference, we have to understand in, in Machshov, in Jewish thought, from Akedas Yitzchok, which, remember, we read this on Rosh Hashanah because it's a source of tremendous merit to the Jewish people. But it's introduced with the words, Achar Hadvarim Ha'ele, after these words took place. There was a conversation between Yitzchok and Yishmael. Yishmael was boasting of the fact that he'd undergone bris at the age of 13 rather than at eight days, to which Yitzchok answered, you gave up one limb, I would give up my life. And that is then followed by the, the narrative of the Akedah, which is great, except for one thing. How do you know that Yishmael wouldn't have given up his life had he been asked? He wasn't asked. How do we know that Yitzchak's Messiris Nefesh is greater? Because Messiris Nefesh means giving over the soul as a translation. This doesn't require necessarily death or pain to be real. It can be achieved even during the highest levels of Simcha. It is simply the desire deep in the Jewish soul to give everything away to God, to let complete go of, of the self. Every time we do an action that goes against our own will for Hashem, that is Messiris Nefesh. And what Yitzchok said is, I give up everything on an ongoing basis. And there's, there's a beautiful Nesivah Sholem in Parashas Emor on the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, where he tells us that when the Rambam describes the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, the Rambam quotes a posuk, Ki olecha horagnu kol hayom which means not only that we died at one point for your sake, but that we die for your sake every day. In, in actual fact, kol hayoy means that we die for you all day. That's Messiris Nefesh. A Jew doesn't want to die and definitely doesn't want to kill, even Rishoim. But he's prepared to where there is no other option, where that is the correct option. It's unlike a lot of the protests that we hear currently around the world where you have extremists busy shouting and screaming on the streets, we want to die, we want to die for right. Allah. Right, because death is the opposite of everything that we strive for. The prayer for Sholem, for peace, accompanies everything to the end of benching, the end of Shemena Esrei. In Hollywood, the good guy is the one who kills all the bad guys, and the more he kills, the better. In Judaism, the good guy is the one who creates peace and teaches peace. But they will do whatever is necessary if required. So how far does Mr. Nefesh go? So Rabbi Jebus Soloveitchik puts it as follows. Hashem says to Avram, take your son. I demand of you the greatest possible sacrifice. I want you to take your son who is your only son, the one who you love. And don't fool yourself to think that after you do this and bring up your son for a burnt offering, that I'll give you another son in the place of Yitzchok. You're not going to have another child. I want your son who is irreplaceable. And that's the Akedah as we understand it. But it's actually much more than that. Because people can learn to cope with loss. We all do. Here, what makes this ask so difficult is the Akedah seemed to serve no purpose at all. Avram had revolutionized the world with the introduction of ethical monotheism. He spent his whole life preaching, you know, chesed, compassion, these beliefs were fundamental to who he was and how he engaged with the world. 
And now God asks him to violate all that he believes in and perform an act of absolute cruelty. The test of Avram is being asked to set aside his understanding and adopt God's in its place. Incomprehensible though it was. It's not just going to be uncomfortable. That would be a sacrifice. So you're saying that religion in itself requires a form of sacrifice? Yes, but sacrifice is a very Christian word. Because I don't mean that you give something up. I mean you give something to, to Hashem. Let's go back to the acceptance of Torah. Naseh v'nishma at Har Sinai is not only that I believe in God, it's that I accept sight unseen, whatever he will ask of me, which will include potentially giving up my life for him. Why? Because I know that it is the better and more correct thing to do. In Kirovin Outreach, the litmus test of whether a student will go all the way, often is whether they're prepared to sacrifice something for their own growth. Because if not, then their beginning of their journey is convenience or for the sake of self, and it might not translate into anything. Now, of course, most of us have never been asked to do what Avram was tasked to do. However, we too are Mesonefesh when we give up something or we take on something with a level of cost in order to become greater. I will add an important caveat that what we take on needs to be at that moment in time correct for us to be doing, you know, and that sometimes needs an outside opinion to validate. But Mesiris Nefesh is acting in a way that actually requires me to give something up. And in fact, taken to its highest point, the reason we have three cardinal sins for which we are required to give up our lives rather than transgress is because at that point, the alternative is so negative, so destructive, that the, the, the outcome is basically dictated to us. But what that macro, what those three cardinal sins do, is create the possibility for micro-engagements, create the possibility for daily heroes. The macro of Spain, of the Crusades, or of the actions carried out on kibbutzim and army bases on the 7th of October, dying to save others, dying as Jews, allows us to make decisions which are uncomfortable. And it might sound trivial, it isn't. They have achieved incredible heights, but living Messiris Nefesh is a very real requirement. And that includes the requirement to be uncomfortable intellectually, meaning we are asked to set aside our limited, finite understanding and perspectives on a given issue and accept that the divine will which is expressed in the Torah. You know, many of our, what you might call traditional Torah values and positions are portrayed as archaic, barbaric. And perhaps in this generation, the test is, do we have the strength of character and the faith to hold on to them nonetheless? We need Messiris Nefesh to overcome Yishmael, to do things. Why? Because God is truth and Torah is truth. So the average Jew who's living his life but doesn't feel an extreme resistance to his day-to-day in doing mitzvahs, whether it's in kindness or, or learning or whatever other spiritual activities he's busy with, if he doesn't feel like it's a struggle, does that mean he's not pushing himself enough? That 
possibly, but what I would actually say is I don't think that scenario exists. There is nobody who, you know, be it the alarm clock waking you up at seven o'clock in the morning because you've got to go to Shacharitz, there isn't a person who does not struggle and we can't dismiss those struggles as being totally insignificant. They are real. Clearly, and perhaps to come back to your question, the more we do and the more there is resistance, the greater the Messiris Nefesh. But Judaism is underlined by Messiris Nefesh. I'll share a story with you from the uh, famous book, All for the Boss, which is about Messiris Nefesh, concerning Rabbi Yaakov Herman, where nobody's life is in danger at any point. He sailed with his wife from the United States to Eretz Yisrael in 1939, in the middle of August. And they were supposed to dock at Haifa on Wednesday, August 30th. But mid-route, the captain receives orders that they should take a circuitous route because the waters of the Mediterranean Sea might have been mined because war was about to break out. And therefore, instead of arriving on Wednesday, they dock on Friday, one hour before Shabbos. And, you know, the loudspeakers announce that everybody has to get off the boat and they have to take all their baggage and it's going to be unloaded on the pier and they've got to move off with it. And it's pandemonium and it's about to be Shabbos. So Rabbi Herman grabs his suitcase that's got his safer tear and his tefillin and his wife takes her handbag and they go over to the head customs officer, he's an English guy, and they say they can't deal with the baggage. He says, I've never desecrated Shabbos in my life. I'm not going to arrive in Eretz Yisrael and start my existence here by breaking Shabbos. It's impossible. Just stamp our passport. We'll pick up our baggage after Shabbos. So the officer says to him, how much baggage do you have here? He says, I've got 16 crates in the hold. So he said to him, do you realize you leave it here? It's going to be placed on the pier. No one's going to be looking at it. By tomorrow night, I can assure you that you're not going to find a shred of your belongings left. The Arabs will have stolen them. So Rabbi Herman says, I have no alternative. It's nearly Shabbos. And this officer, he's incredulous. And he calls over another English officer and says, OK, fine. Just stamp their passports. Let them through. This rabbi, he's, he's prepared to lose all his belongings because he's got to get there in time for his Sabbath. Fine. They take a taxi. They get to the house of the rabbi they're staying in just before literally candle lighting. And the entire Shabbos, Rabbi Herman is, is spiritually elated. And over and over again, he repeated, the boss, which was his name for Hashem, the boss does everything for me. What could I ever do for him? Now at last, I have the schus to give all for the boss, for his mitzvah of Shabbos and to be Mekadesh Hashem. That's from Sirius Nefesh, right? Wow. Shabbos after Havdalah, they go to the port. It's pitch black, and they see at the very end of the pier, there's a little bit of light, so they, they walk over there, and there's an English voice that, you know, rings out, who goes there? So Rabbi Herman says, we are passengers from the boat of yesterday. And the guard says, what's your name? Jacob Herman. So he says to him, well, Rabbi, it's about time you put in an appearance. I was assured that you'd be here the moment the sun set. I've been responsible for your baggage for these last 24 hours. My commanding officer said he would have my head if any of your baggage was missing. Please check to see that everything is here and sign and, you know, get out of here because I'm exhausted, which is an incredible ending. But any time we take a course of action which is uncomfortable because it's MS... That's Messirus Nefesh. Well, so to summarize, we don't 
ask for difficult times. We have an every day for early Danish Soyan. But when it comes our way, we appreciate it because that is now an opportunity to show real mysterious nefesh. But I would say even less than that. Nisoyan would indicate that it's, you know, a trial where I'm being asked to really think this through and make that leap on a daily ongoing basis. Perhaps, you know, getting out of bed is something that we all obviously have to learn to deal with on a daily basis, but something that does actually push me a little bit more than was the case is Mesiris Nefesh if it's done because it is MS. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Now we're just going to move on to our Zoom recording. It's not as clear as our recording here, but I highly recommend you listen till the end. And Rabbi Hirsch, we're going to just finish off after the Zoom call with a quick ending. Rabbi Hirsch, this is a momentous occasion. What started as almost an experiment has now snowballed into a world-renowned history podcast with currently, Baruch Hashem, over 10,000 weekly downloads. In honor of this milestone, we reached out to Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson and asked if he'd honor us and join our 100th episode, and he very kindly agreed. Rabbi Y.Y. is probably the most well-known Orthodox Jewish speaker in the world. He has traveled extensively to all corners of the globe, educating, inspiring, spreading Torah wisdom in his very relatable way, which the audience instantly connects to. Our subject tonight is Jewish survival during the communist era. And I just want to thank you so much again, Rabbi for taking the time to honor us with your presence here. Thank you. It's my honor and my privilege, especially to discuss a very painful chapter in Jewish history and also a very, very profoundly meaningful chapter in Jewish history in terms of the heroism that was displayed by some of our brothers and sisters. And it's something that's also dear to my heart because of my own family connection. Both of my parents were born in the former Soviet Union. My mother was born in a city called Kutais in Georgia, South Russia. My father was born in a town, a city called Mamentovka, not far from Moscow. And both of my grandparents were arrested by the communists. One of my grandfathers was tortured, badly exiled, to the gulag, ultimately made it out, but not without tremendous torture and suffering and trauma and anguish that obviously affects us to this very, <laughs> I'm laughing, but it obviously affects us to this very day. I also grew up, I would say, I would say many people my age grew up in communities of Holocaust survivors. I grew up in a community of gulag survivors meaning many of my community were in the concentration camps too, but I would say most of them were Russian Jews who suffered terribly under the Stalinist regime and made it out after the Second World War illegally. So I have to say that the culture in which I grew up was one that was saturated with stories and experiences and the residue of their terrible, terrible suffering under the communists. Now, this is a chapter not so well known, even to Jews, who know the basics of Jewish history, the Holocaust was such a uh, titanic event and it eclipsed all the other Jewish suffering so profoundly that people don't know how much the Jews suffered in Russia. This is even before the Bolsheviks took over. Jewish life under the czarist regimes was miserable, miserable, the suffering. But once the Bolshevik revolution came, once the communists took over, murdered the Tsar and his family in 1918, 
and created a new paradise under Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky, now all the doors of purgatory were opened and the amounts of Jewish suffering and people suffering over the next few decades under Joseph Stalin from 1924 till his death in March 1953 and already the years before under Lenin is un un unimaginable. I'll bring out, uh, I guess, just a few basic major points. The first is a group called the Yevsektsia. The Yevsektsia was the Jewish section of the Communist Party. And let me tell you what the Yevsektsia accomplished. What they call the Haskalah, the Enlightenment, couldn't do over 200 years to the Jewish people, the Yevsektsia managed to do in nine, 10 years. The Enlightenment that began in Western Europe and traveled to Eastern Europe changed the face of world Jewry. It created a whole new dimension in Jewish life. The divisions we are all familiar today, the reformers, reformed Jews, and conservative Jews, and Orthodox Jews, etc., etc. This is not from the times of Moses, of Moses or of Akiva. This is all as a result of the Enlightenment in Germany and in France, etc., so it changed Jewish life, and certainly a huge amount of Jews you know, were secularized in their struggle to choose between their ancient Jewish identity and the new opportunities of the modern era. But nothing came close to what the Yevsektsia did during the 10 years from 1919 to 1929 when Stalin got rid of all of them. The Yevsektsia managed in 10 years to uproot almost every last vestige of Yiddishkeit of Judaism in the former Soviet Union. They did it brilliantly and strategically. The head of the sector was a man named Shimon Dimenstein. Story has it that he learned in Tells that he got smitten. He was ordained as a rabbi from Reb Chaim Radzensky, the chief rabbi of Vilna, who was considered one of the seminal sages of the era. He passed away in 1940. The story has it that he is the one who ordained Dimenstein as a rabbi. And this man became one of the fiercest forces to uproot all of Judaism in the Soviet Union. They did it unbelievably successful. Over the next 70 years, Judaism in the Soviet Union would go completely, completely underground. And that which was left from it is a miracle beyond miracles. If you want to see a modern-day Jewish miracle, I know Russia is not an easy place today, especially with what's going on. But if you go today to the Russia and you see the resurrection of Jewish life and Judaism in all parts of the Soviet Union, in my mind, this is a miracle akin to the splitting of the sea, if not greater. Literally every element of Yiddishkeit was cut down and cut down ruthlessly. My own grandfather was arrested and tortured. He was one of the emissaries of the previous sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, who succeeded his father, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, in 1920. Father died in Rostov. His father told them, dark clouds are descending upon Russian Jewry. My son, be ready to sacrifice yourself, not just in potentiality, but in actuality. And his son lived up to his father's mandate because most of the rabbis living there either went underground or left Russia. And that was the practical thing to do. <laughs> it was impossible to do anything else. The Rebbe stayed there and literally built a complete underground clandestine network of Jewish schools and yeshivas and shuls and sending books and shaykhatim and mailin 
His operation was something that is unimaginable. He built the librarian of Chabad, Rabbi Levin, told me that the Lubavitch Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef, built 600 underground Jewish schools. <laughs> now, you know how many people who in democracies built one Jewish school, two Jewish schools, three Jewish schools? It's very enough to give you a migraine till you retire. You're talking here under impossible circumstances. We have to understand that Stalin murdered anywhere between 20 and 60 million people. He killed more people than Hitler. The purges of Stalin were so frightening. And the Jews and religious Jews, never mind committed Jews who were dedicated to spreading Yiddishkeit, were primary, primary targets. I want to share with you two humorous but very profound stories. There was a Jew I knew. I knew him personally. His name was Reb Mendel Futafas. He spent many, many years in the Siberian Gulag until Stalin's death. Stalin's death in 53 eased things up. Life didn't become easy for Soviet Jews. <laughs> yeah, with Khrushchev and the subsequent dictators, life was, was horribly difficult, especially if you wanted to practice Judaism. But you couldn't compare to Stalin. <laughs> Stalin, you know, if you blinked the wrong way, if you had a different opinion, if you even thought, if you even had a thought, you know, he knew what you're thinking. And if he didn't know what you're thinking, he shot you just in case. So it wasn't a problem. Either he knew what you're thinking, and if he didn't know what you're thinking, just get rid of another person, right? It wasn't a big deal. Reb Mendel was sent to the Gulag, and he came out. He came out of the Soviet Union in the 60s. And he was a great storyteller. So he would share stories of life in Siberia. He was there over a decade. Most people died. The cold, the cold weather, you couldn't survive. You're talking about 70 below zero. That's according to our new 70. It's crazy stuff. How do you survive? And you're working all day. They exhausted you. The typhus, illnesses, starvation. Very few people came back. Millions and millions and millions died at the Gulag. Besides those who were shot in the prisons by the firing squads. Besides the Ukrainians who died from famine and hunger and the five, six million people. I mean, it's really unbelievable what happened. It's also unbelievable how many millions of Jews supported communism and Stalinism. How many, you know, my cousins in the Soviet Union described to me in 1953 how millions of people were sobbing on Stalin's death. Stalin was a Hitler. Stalin was one of the most evil human beings to walk the face of this earth, however you're going to explain it. But when he died, the Russian people were sobbing. A few years ago, I gave a lecture to Russian Jews in Connecticut, like a 1,000 or 2,000 of them, people who grew up in the Soviet Union, came out. And they were rediscovering their Jewish life. And they came together for a Shabbaton. And I spoke to them. And I still remember an old Jew comes over to me afterwards in front of everybody. And he says, propaganda. Every word was propaganda. You should be thankful to Stalin because he is the one who defeated Hitler. And he is the one who saved Judaism. Said, so what about the millions he murdered? American propaganda. So here's a Jew who in the 21st century is still indoctrinated. Mendel told us, he would talk to the yeshiva students, and he said that he was once in one of the barracks, and they needed to entertain themselves for years and years and years, no family, gornished, gornished. So I'm going to tell you three stories he told. Two are very humorous and deep, and one touches directly and in my mind captures the core of Mr. Snafish. <laughs> Story number one that Mendel shared he said, one of the most illegal, forbidden, forbidden things to do is to have a card game. 
They didn't want this type of entertainment. But you're in the barracks from sunset, right? Now, they had to wake up early in the morning. They went out to the forest at dawn. But still, they like to play cards. But if you got caught, one of those cards, you can end up in solitary confinement. Either they can shoot you. You can end up in solitary confinement. They'll starve you to death. You're finished. You're, you're chopped liver. Chopped liver would be treated with more dignity than you. He said in his barrack, there was some real Russian peasants, and they had cards, and they would often play card games. He wasn't part of it. But Mendel was a real chassidish. Uh, he actually used to come to London a lot because he had a son who lived in London, a better foot of us, who he hasn't seen in probably for decades. But in any case, passed away in 95, Mendel. So he wasn't part of the game, but he was there. One night, the inspector, they called the Nachalnik. The Nachalnik was like the Lord, you know, the prison warden, the Lord. He was in charge. Life and death was in his hands. <clears throat> he comes to make an inspection. And before they know, the door opens. You know, you can hear him coming. Well, not a lot of places to hide. There were no safes. <laughs> there were no deep pockets. There were no cubbies with drawers. This wasn't a five-star hotel or even a two-star hotel or even a one-star hotel. This was a miserable Siberian barrack where you barely survived. The guy comes in. He says, I know you're playing cards in Russia. He's cursing them like they know what it occurs. I'm going to find them and I'm going to punish you. And Mendel got scared. What's going to happen? And the man starts searching. He can't find the cards. He looks everywhere. There's not many places to look, you know. This place, that place. No cards. So Mendel thought maybe they have some secret, you know, sewage system, some secret pit or cistern. You throw it outside. So obviously when the guy leaves, there won't be any more cards. And the man left. They locked the door and they continue playing. But Mendel went over to the, you know, the leader. He says, you've got to tell me the mystery. What in the world? How in the world did you hide those cards? So he says, listen, Mendel, he says, I will tell you the story. But if you tell anybody, I will destroy you with my own hands. I will murder you. Just remember. <laughs> so Mendel said he never told us that when he came out from Siberia, he was talking in America to yeshiva boys. He allowed himself to tell the story. He didn't think the person will strangle him to death with his bare hands. And the man said, we have here in this parish one of the best pickpocketers of Moscow. So let me tell you what happens. The guy comes in, the Nachalnik, the warden, the inspector comes in. Right when he comes in, this pickpocketer, slips all the cards into his pocket, into the inspector's pocket. <laughs> he searches everywhere. He doesn't think to search in his own pockets. Right before he leaves, our pickpocketer takes it out of his pockets. He leaves and we continue to play. Reb Mendel used to turn to the boys. I could get emotional when he said, and he would say, boys, it taught me one of the deepest lessons of my life. We're all looking in other people's pockets. I'm looking for happiness in your pocket, for success in your pocket, for meaning in your pocket. The only pocket I don't think to look in is to my own. Said, but that's where your cards are. Your cards are nowhere else. He shared once how a friend, a friend, a, a non-Jewish Russian peasant, told him that he's planning to escape. Because he was so different, he was Jewish, he was rabbinic, he was Hasidic, the non-Jews could trust him because they knew he's not one of them. He won't go snitch. He also saw he's a man of principles. Doesn't work on Shabbos. He wouldn't eat non-kosher food. You know, you go there without non-kosher. He eats described Pesach without kosher food. <laughs> bread was your food. Without eating bread for eight days it was not easy. You have to understand what these Jews went through. Those who were committed to Judaism. 
He said, one of them shared with him he's planning to escape. And he told them exactly how he's going to do it. There's a certain point where the shifts change and he has 20 seconds and he's going to be out of view. And that's when he's going to run into the Siberian forest. He says, well, what's going to happen? He says, he arranged with somebody miles into the forest to pick him up and save him. You know, they had their, their whole underground espionage relationships. So he says, but the dogs, there's two vicious dogs that are trained. When somebody runs, they chase him and they, they, they maul him. They tear him into pieces. So what are you going to do? So he said, I'm prepared for it. So of course, he said, Mendel, if you say a word, I physically kill you. Mendel made sure to watch with one of his eyes that moment and watch the escape. And he did. And the man runs and the two dogs start chasing him. By the time the guards figure it out, their bullets don't reach him because he's already deep in the forest, but the dogs are chasing him. And suddenly, Mendel sees the dog stopped and they come back with a big piece of meat. The man managed to get his hands on a delicious, good piece of meat, what we would call a good steak or a good rib steak. He had it for the dogs, and they took the meat, and they let him go, and the man escaped. Rip Mendel said the chief security guard who was in charge came, took his bullet, and shot both dogs dead. So Mendel said, after a while, I was talking to this person. It was like a friendly moment, a moment of grace. I said, I want to ask you a question. These dogs were trained so well. Why do you shoot them? <laughs> and the man said like this. Remember, the man told him this. He said, these dogs were trained for that moment, that moment when that life ran away that was supposed to chase him. And the fact that at that moment, a piece of meat was more important than doing their mission, they deserve to die. I don't need them. And then Mendel turned to the yeshiva students and he said, life is a school. The circumstances of life develop all the skills you need to fulfill your mission. And then will come the moment when your mission needs to be fulfilled and somebody will throw a piece of meat. <laughs> don't run after the meat. Keep your eye on the mission. So here you're talking about a Jew who suffered so much and yet took all these stories and turned them into life lessons for young American or British or Israeli kids who grew up in freedom to teach us. But there's one story he said that I think captures so much. And that is, he said, one night in the barrack, the prisoners were talking. And one of them said, look what came of me. In Moscow, I was the most respected actor. You have to understand Stalin exiled anyone who used their brain. If you were a man of intelligentsia, a professor, a writer, an ace essayist, a journalist, a thinker, a Jew, and you said an opinion, you were done. You were finished. And what he did was, as my mother explained to me once, he destroyed families. He had brothers inform on brothers, children inform on parents. So if you informed on your brother or sister or your mother, you were elevated. You were promoted in the party. You got more food. You got a better house. You got a better job. You can buy shoes. You can get a fruit. So you understand when the basic trust, I can't trust my mother. I can't trust my sister. I can't trust my daughter. What happens to life? The fabric of life is a strength. And this went on for decades and decades and decades. 
My mother told me, you have to understand that we Russians instinctively, it's hard for many of us to express emotions because you weren't allowed to talk. And it's even hard for many to say the truth. We were accustomed that you lie about everything. In any case, this man was saying, I was considered a celebrity in Moscow, an actor, and what do I have now? Nothing. Nothing. I'm a skeleton, bones. I'm not even going to survive this place. Another person says, huh, you're complaining. What about me? I was a general in the Tsar's army, one of the most decorated generals in Russian history. And look at me now, stripped from my humanity, from my dignity. He says, and everyone began to lament about the glorious careers they once had before the commies took over. And now they lost everything. And he says, even though they were men and they were tough men, they were crying. It was a sad moment. It was like a, they were in cahoots. It was like what you would call by us, you know, a recovery program. They were just expressing, expressing their pain. Reb Mendel said, I wasn't crying. <laughs> I wasn't crying. So he says, they turned to me and they said, you must have been a loser before. So you have nothing to cry for. <laughs> you didn't lose anything, right? So Reb Mendel said to them, he said, no, I was actually a very successful man. I think he worked in a chocolate factory. He said, I have a wife. I have children. I had a good job. I lost a lot. So they said to him, so why are you not crying on your lost career? So Mendel said, he told, he told the yeshiva boys, I looked at them and in Russian I said, because my primary vocation I did not lose. They said, what did you mean? He said, you see, I worked in a chocolate factory, but my primary vocation, my primary work was, he says, I was a servant of God. I served God. He said, that wasn't taken from me. That vocation I still have right here. What changed was the software not the hardware. I used to serve him in one way, and now I serve God in a different way. I used to be his ambassador in a chocolate factory. Today, I'm his ambassador here in Siberia. But my core work has never been taken from me. And I still do the same work here. And he says that for them, that was an eye-opening experience that they never even heard. They never even can imagine that. And in my mind, I think that that sentiment really captures the essence of what this journey meant and means for so many Jews in their struggles through life, whether it relates to the Soviet era or it relates to other eras or it relates to us in our era with our own challenges. And that is, he was really capturing maybe one of the core ideas of the Jewish people and of Judaism. Circumstances may change. Some days may be great and some days may be difficult. Some days may be glorifying and enthralling and some days may be depressing and horrible and may I say even hellish. But he had an anchor. He was anchored. And that's what Mr. Snefesh is. He was anchored in the idea that he is not uh, here by mistake. And he is a shliach. Chabad lingo. He's a shliach of Hashem. And shluch shaladam kemaisai. He may have been sent to a very, very difficult place and a grueling task lie ahead of him. But as I always tell my students, when the soldier woke up in June 1944 in Normandy with casualties all around him, the soldier never said to himself, oh, I wasn't such a bad boy. Why did they send me to this crazy place? The soldier understood that he wasn't punished. He was sent 
And he was sent because of his skills, because of his talents, because of his abilities to defeat Hitler. And I think Remendel captured that sentiment, that wherever we are in life, we were not punished and sent there to get rid of us, but we were sent there, shluchesh adam kamaisi, as messengers of Hashem, to be able to bring light and to be able to bring truth and authenticity into that place. And that's how he and so many other Hasidim and Jews lived in the Soviet Union. Rabbi, can I pick up on the unbelievable message of Mesir Nefesh that you've portrayed, that you've painted, that you've described, and for a moment turn yeah. it 180 degrees to something that you started with, and that is the how do you explain that some people, not that they turned in all generation, hold over there, but that they turned so fast from where they had been? What was almost the switch? It's a great question. I think it's a question that historians, sociologists, philosophers, and rabbis ponder because we see this throughout Jewish history. There's a beautiful expression by the Balatanya that I love to quote. He says in Hebrew, That which stands tallest falls lowest. <laughs> when a wall falls, he says, you know, the stone that stood all the way on the top, that's the stone that falls furthest away. And the apple on top of the tree falls the furthest away. I think these Jews, all Jews, we don't play little league. We play big league. If you look at the 100 years, right, the 100 years from 1800 to 1900, 1850 to 1950, if you look at those 100 years, you will find that those were the 100 years when Jews, for the first time in 2,000 years, were shocked by new opportunities. In their own mind, at least, the walls of the ghetto crumbled, and they were given the opportunity to participate in the conversation of mankind, that sudden metamorphosis from being quarantined as, you know, the killers of Yashka and the crazy people and the religious fundamentalists whom God hates and the segregated group who it's a mitzvah to persecute. And suddenly we are professors in Berlin. Suddenly we're sitting in the salons of Prussia and conversing with the greatest composers, greatest poets, Suddenly, Moses Mendelssohn, Henrich Heine, Felix Mendelssohn, Moses Mendelssohn's grandson, are key architects of the new German culture back in Russia. <laughs> Jews, they are the leaders of the revolution. Leipa Lebronstein is Leon Trotsky, Stalin's Politburo, his own brother-in-law, Kaganovich. You're dealing here with the Jews who became architects of a new world. The Communist Manifesto was written by Karl Marx, who was, who was another Jew. For the Jewish people, that sudden transformation and shock in one generation brought to fore all the trauma, all the suffering, all the anguish that they were dealing with for thousands of years. And here, sadly, their outlet was turn against your own people. Hate yourself. Hate your blood. You are responsible for your destruction. Look, the world really welcomes us. They made a miserable, miserable mistake. Most of them were gunned down. 
brutally. I don't have to talk about Germany, what happened to the Jews of Germany. And we don't have to talk what happened to the Jews under Stalin. It's good to take Shimon Dimenstein, who was murdered. The entire of Sexy was murdered. Stalin's favorite actors were murdered. The poets were all murdered in 1952. Everybody was murdered and tortured. The Jews who turned against Judaism were ultimately accused of being Jewish. And I think we are witness here of the complexity of Jewish psychology. I always tell my students, a Jew who grows up not really internalizing the message of Torah to understand himself and his people and the world around him is like Mozart growing up in a home without a piano. <laughs> the genius of the Jew is very deep. The sensitivity of the Jew is very deep. If it's directed and harnessed in a productive, meaningful, moral, ethical, divine way, it can light up the world. It's like nuclear energy. If not, it can wreak havoc in disproportionate ways. And that's what we have seen. All that energy, all that creativity, all that loftiness turned against themselves with such venom, with such passion. It's proportionate with the spiritual power of the Jew. That's how I see it. The very same spiritual power that fueled the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Russia, the previous Lubavitcher is the same spiritual power that fueled these people to fight him. In fact, in 1927, when he was arrested, two Jews came to arrest him in the middle of the night. One guy's name was Nachmanson, one guy's name was Lulav. The Lubavitcher Rebbe told the story, and he said he was carrying his, uh, his chamadan, his little briefcase with talas and tefillin and some swarm. They let him take it to the Leningrad prison, Shpalerka, where they sentenced him to death, by the way, and then they commuted the sentence to 10 years Siberia, and then three years. It's interesting because they literally almost killed him that night, June 1927, and obviously the face of Russian jury, probably the face of the world would have been quite different, but uh, God runs the world in any case. So the Rebbe was holding it. So one of them, Nachmanson, turns to him and says these words, Rebbe, my grandfather was your grandfather's chassid. His grandfather was a Chabad Lubavitch chassid of the fourth Chabad Rebbe. He used to carry your Zaydas packages. Let me carry yours. And he took it from the Rebbe. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe stared at him and took it back and said, no, your grandfather followed my grandfather where he wanted to go. You want me to follow you where you want to go. You don't have the privilege of taking it. He took it back. The Rebbe would not let him take that dignity from him and use this cynical quip of saying, oh, my grandfather was a country. So he's talking about children and grandchildren, not just of religious Jews. Most of them had a Hader education, yeshiva education. They spoke a perfect Yiddish. But they could not, they could not forgive themselves for being Jewish. You know, Rabbi Yaakov, they tell a story. It's fascinating. Rabbi Yaakov Maza was the rabbi of Moscow. Maza is Mem Zayinal from Mizera Aaron Hakoyen. Another interesting Jew who had the same name was Jackie Mason. Jackie Mason is Yaakov Maza just for Broadway. Jackie Mason sounds better than. We want to introduce the great comedian Yaakov Maza. Jackie Mason somehow. Jackie was Yaakov and Mason was Maza. Yaakov Maza during the Civil War between 1918 and 1921. Maybe people don't even know. Some say between 100 and 150,000 Jews were brutally murdered. People don't even understand the numbers that we're dealing with before the Holocaust, before Stalin. 
The suffering that our people went through in that part of the world is unimaginable. So Yaakov Maza came to Trotsky. Trotsky was the leader of the Red Army, and he was a Jew. He was a Yiddish kid. You know, he was a Yiddish kid. He wasn't a Hitler. He wasn't a Goebbels. He wasn't an Eisman or Himmler. Man, the Jewish kid, Leibler was his name. Yaakov Maza came to speak to him about protecting Jews. And they say that he looked at him and he told him, I'm not Jewish. I'm not Jewish. My name is Leon Trotsky. I'm not Jewish. He didn't renounce, renounced his Judaism. So Yaakov Maza looked at him and told him, in Yiddish, that's the problem. The Trotsky's machen al his old name was Brunstein. So he said, the Trotskys wreak havoc and the Brunsteins are accused. They're the ones who are the culprits who carry the guilt. That split in the Jewish heart is very, very telling of that era. Enormous amounts of Jews felt the need to disconnect from Judaism. Take Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud's name was Schleimel of Freud. Much of his methods are based on Jewish tradition, even Talmudical methods. But for him, the most important thing was to deny the fact that he could read Hebrew. They have today a book that his father wrote, and he writes to him a dedication in Hebrew. But he denied it because he was afraid people are going to say psychoanalysis is a Jewish thing. Viktor Frankelos was very important for him to disassociate, not in a negative way, but he wanted to disassociate. Fritz Haber. Fritz Haber was Einstein's, one of Einstein's best friends, great chemist. He won the Nobel Prize. They say that a third of humanity today owes its life to Fritz Haber because he is the one who gave us artificial fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer. He managed to extract nitrogen from the air and bring what he called bread from the air, you know, bread from heaven. And it was a tremendous thing, but he's also the one who invented chemical, chemical warfare, cyclone. <clears throat> that was used as the last thing that millions of Jews breathed in Auschwitz and the death camps. Including members of his own family. Including members of his own family. I mean, his wife committed suicide. His son, Herman, committed suicide. His main thing was he wanted to be a patriot and show loyalty to the Kaiser. And when Jews want to show their loyalty, they out-Gentile the Gentiles. They do it much better than the Goyim do it. You know, they do it in the Jewish way. <laughs> like I always tell my students, Jews are not regular atheists. They deny God with religious fervor. So mm -hmm. it has just a different quality to it. It has a, The hatred has a different quality. The atheism has a different quality. And it's almost irrational. I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he's speaking about the Israel, about the Jews who, do, who, who are ready to endanger Israel. And he said, Jews have a gift of faith. And many of them use it to believe, to have faith in Yasser Arafat. <laughs> they have a gift of faith. Instead of using faith to build the world, I use my gift of faith to believe Yasser Arafat, even when it's irrational. So I think this is a very profound lesson about our history. When Jews are not imbued with what Yiddishkeit really is and what Taita really is, we could become a very dangerous people. We're revolutionaries by spirit. We want to change the world. Every Jew either wants to be Mashiach or wants to bring Mashiach in his way or some form of way, and we can become dangerous. We have to be careful. We have to be careful. You're dealing with very deep spiritual energy. When God says, I chose you to change the world, it's no joke. This is in the DNA of the Jewish people. Jews are not content 
was just building a picket fence around the house and playing golf. We like playing golf. We like picket fences. We like Chinese food, British food, and of course, sushi, the quintessential Jewish food. But there is a fire burning in the Jewish belly. It's an amazing fire. Tolstoy wrote about this, this eternal flame that the Jewish people carry. But as we all know, you could see what happened in Hawaii a few weeks ago, and the Canadian fires are still burning. Raging fires are dangerous. They have to be harnessed. They have to be controlled. And then they're majestic. So that's my short answer to a very complex question. Can I just ask, we're discussing an era with Monsieur Snefesh about Bris Miller, about Yiddishkeit, an incredibly difficult era for the Jewish people. And we see throughout history that Monsieur Snefesh is what's kept the Jewish people going and that commitment. How do we tap into that today? If oh, that's the sole reason, and that's the shame question. of our survival, how do we keep that going in such a... Excellent question. Excellent question. I would say, and I don't say this lightly, because I come from a family of a lot of mysterious nefesh and a lot of suffering. And as we know in epigenetics, we all carry trauma in our genes. <laughs> trauma is not a story. Trauma is DNA. So we all have that. We all are dealing with the pain that our ancestors experienced. What we also have in our genes, their faith, their wisdom, their commitment, their dedication, their amuna, their mysterious nefesh, their love. We have everything. We have their trauma and we have their infinite conviction. Mysterious nefesh exists in every generation. It's not a question of software. It's a question of hardware, meaning the methods change. Thank God they change. But the conviction, the passion, is all the same. And in a way, and I'm going to say something a little radical, and it should be taken with a grain of salt. Sometimes the mysterious nefesh of our milieu is more difficult in a very different way. I don't mean to compare it to the suffering and death of our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. But sometimes when you're given uninhibited opportunity and you're given the gift of freedom, and we're all very grateful for the gifts of freedom that our generation experienced. Only grateful. And we all must say about our generation, that 6.6 .6 million Jews are living in Israel. And when you think about the number, 6.6 .6 million Jews living in the homeland. In 1940, there was a half a million Jews living in Israel. In 1948, there were 600,000 Jews living in Israel. 1% died in the War of Independence. Today, you have the number of 6.6 .6 million. As I told somebody the other day, we will soon reach a point where more than half of the Jewish people will be living in our eternal homeland that has not existed since the days of Shlaima HaMalach. So people should understand the miracles and the fact that we have freedom around the world with all the anti-Semitism, with all the problems. I don't mean to minimize anything, God forbid, and the tragedies and the challenges that we have emotionally, spiritually, financially, psychologically, etc. It's important to celebrate and to be grateful for the opportunities we have. But there is a mysterious nefesh today of a different kind, but no less serious and no less urgent. The Lubavitch Rebbe would say, I grew up at the feet of the Lubavitch Rebbe. He would always say this. He grew up in Russia, so he knew what it was like. He was born in 1902 in Ukraine under czarist rule. He was a teenager in 1917 during the Bolshevik Revolution. His father suffered a lot. His father was exiled in Kazakhstan, died in exile. Most of his family was killed in the Holocaust during Ukraine, but they suffered a lot. The Rebbe himself escaped Russia with his father-in-law. 
and then moved to Berlin. He was in Berlin when Hitler took over. The Rebbe then escaped to Paris, and he left Paris when the Nazis took over. So he lived through literally all the major upheavals of the generation, and then he moved to America. And he became one of the most influential Jewish leaders of the 20th and 21st and 20th century. Passed away in 94, the last years of the 20th century. And he would always say, he would always say to Fabrengans, he would say something very profound. He would say the word nefesh in Tanakh means two things. It means soul, nefesh, nefesh, right? Nefesh ha'adam, nefesh ha'basar bedamhi, the Torah says. Nefesh also means desire, ratzay. Like in Yirmiyo, ain't nafshi ala So he would say, Mesiris nefesh of our youth or our fathers was Mesiris nefesh to give away the soul. He says, today Mesiris nefesh is Mesiris haratzay. Mesiris haratzay means within freedom. I want to be able to choose, to choose with conviction what God wants for me. And often, when we're not pushed to the wall, when we're not oppressed, when we have so many options, people don't know who they really are. What do I believe in? What are my deepest convictions? What are my deepest passions? I have to choose it. Nobody is going to point a finger to me and say, you dirty, filthy I mean, Unfortunately, sometimes, yes. But generally, we have to choose it from within. We can assimilate. We can just go on vacation. We can relax. And I think today what Mesiris Nefesh really means is internal transformation. It's really identifying what it means to be a Jew in a very, very personal way and then mobilize our energies, our ritzayness, our desires, our convictions towards that cause. And in many ways, it's no less urgent a calling. Sometimes the internal transformation that must come from within is very, very difficult because there's no outer force. On the other hand, when it happens, it's sometimes even more meaningful and powerful because it's transformational. Logically, one would think that a person is able to be Moshe Nefesh by the crystal clear clarity that every single situation he finds himself in is the situation that God wants him to be in. And we've talked about on the podcast and tonight so many countless cases of people, you know, choosing. They're so clear that this is the right direction to go in. And yet we see throughout all our times in history, and even today, where we're talking about and you just mentioned before that struggles today could almost match it and materialistically different, but the struggles are as real today. And yet we see, for lack of a better way of saying it, the simple Jew, the simple Jew has been able to be most nefesh throughout history and ensuring the chain. How do you explain how without such a, you know, the learned tzaddikim of the generations we understand, how do you explain how the simple Jew has been able to be most nefesh throughout history? Powerful question. I think, and this answer is not my answer. This answer is, since we're talking about Russia tonight, so it comes from another very famous Russian master, the Tanya, Rabbi Shnei Zaman of Liadi. And he writes in chapter 18 and 19 that sometimes in the simple Jew you saw something that you wouldn't see even in the most learned and educated Jews. And that is the core of the Jew, the core of the soul, came out in history again and again and again with Jews who at the surface seemed unlearned, 
and uneducated, and even Jews who sometimes were lightheaded and frivolous, and yet that came a moment of truth. You saw that connection emerging in unprecedented and unparalleled ways. This attests to a very deep truth about the Jewish people, and that is we are not a religion. In other words, if a Christian declares tomorrow that he doesn't believe in the Lord, he's not a Christian. And if a Muslim says, I don't believe in Muhammad, he's not a Muslim. With a Jew, we say, Yisrael. A Jew who <laughs> says, I don't believe in anything. Oh, no, you're still Jewish. And halakhically, if he betrothes a Jewish woman, she needs a get. So what does that mean? That means that Judaism is much deeper than a religion, like the color of your soul. I can't get rid of the color of my eyes. I can't change my DNA. <laughs> you're talking about something that is innate. It's intrinsic. It's essential. And even the Jew consciously says, I don't believe. We still say, He's a Jew. Like the halacha is, ben kachu, ben bonem. and Gemara and Kedushin is an argument about it. The halacha the Rajba says is like Rameya, that every Jew is called a child, and history has attested to that. Sadly, Mengele did not send to the gas chambers the Jews who said, oh, we believe, we put on tefillin every day, we're right-wingers. Oh, you're a liberal, you're an atheist, you're a left-winger. <laughs> you don't go to the... Sadly... The size of the hat, the yamaka, ya yamaka, no yamaka, what you believed in was almost irrelevant. Why? Because at the core of the Jewish person, there is a soul. That soul is divine. The Tanya says a Jewish soul is a chelik elekami mal mamash. And that's equal in the greatest and most holy Jew and the simplest Jew. And every man, woman, and child, sometimes with a simple Jew, He's not so sophisticated, so it's even more acute. It's even more revealed. And throughout history, you've seen that Jews, you wouldn't expect it from them. But that core, when it emerged, it was capable of doing incredible, incredible things. You could see it even in Israel. In Israel, there's a tremendous split today with demonstrations and fighting, right? But when they go to war, things change. We shouldn't have to reach that space. Rabbi Lau, the former chief rabbi, says, you know, we learned how to die together. In Auschwitz, now we have to learn how to live together. <laughs> you know, that's the Messiah Snafrish. He's speaking about Messiah Snafrish today. Messiah Snafrish today sometimes means I shouldn't listen to my ego. I shouldn't listen to my trauma. I shouldn't disassociate from my children. That's sometimes Messiah Snafrish. I shouldn't hate another Jew. You say, yeah, what's the big deal? It's a big deal. It's a choice every day to live with my ego or to live with my soul, to live with my trauma or to live with my divinity. And that choice, I think, is, is available to each of us. And the gift is at the core of every single Jew. This is not something where there is a hierarchy and where some Jews are, are more Jewish than others, you know? The Rebbe used to always say, nine Moshe Rabbeinus in a room cannot make a minion. <laughs> you can have nine Moshe Rabbeinus, they will not make a minion. You're not allowed to say, Baruch Hu, sorry, you're not allowed to say, Yeshmei you take 10 uh, balayagolas, as they used to say, 10 wagoneers who barely know olive bays, and suddenly you could say Kaddish. Well, what happened? Moshe Rabbeinu is not enough to bring down the Shekhinah. It tells us something about the Jewish people. 10 simple Jews allow it. Nine of the holiest Jews because there's something in the very essence of the Jew that transcends education, transcends uh, skills, our skills are important. 
and our knowledge is important. Those are the things that differentiate between us and we learn from each other. But there's also a core divine essence that the masters, the spiritual masters call Yeshidah the core oneness with Hashem, and that is something that does not belong to any specific Jew. It's something that Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and Sarah, Rebekah, bequeathed to every single Jew who was born to a Jewish mother converts according to Torah. And sometimes in the simplest Jew, you'll see it more than in others. Just like when you got to go into cold water or hot water, it's the feet that do it, not the head. <laughs> you got to trust the feet. The reason we're discussing with Sirius Nefesh is because we've had thousands of years of Golas. And in those years, we've seen pogroms, inquisitions, we've seen a Holocaust, and an immense amount of suffering and persecution. How can we see and understand what Hashem's plan was for the Jewish people? You're asking the big, big questions now, the big guns. I think that it's precisely according to the plan. We're living now in an era where obviously Jewish history is coming to a crescendo, to a climax. The consciousness all over the world is changing. And the consciousness in the Jewish world is changing as well. And I'm not talking about a positive transformation. The Gula energy is beaconing upon us. It's not a transformation only geographically. We're going to go there to Seoul, we're going to build a base of Mictors. That, of course. We're talking about a transformation of consciousness. What the Navi Yeshaya says, Hashem Hashem the primary element of Gula Jewish thought is an expansiveness of consciousness where we perceive humanity, the planet, and the cosmos as one. The Baal Shem Tev used to say, doesn't only mean there's one God negating polytheism, that too. But monotheism is only the first step in faith. The deeper form of Hashem Echad is but is outs. God translates into oneness, a perception of the universe as a cohesive, integrated, holistic, organic oneness. All of us are manifestations of divine energy, so we're all one. I don't end here and you don't begin here. We are really one. The Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, writes something spectacular. It's almost like a chapter out of a modern books of physics and quantum mechanics. And he literally wrote this in the 1700s. How he knew it, I don't know. But this is what he writes. He says, if our eyes were microscopic, if our eyes had the ability to be able to perceive the truth, when we would look at matter, we would not see matter, we would see consciousness. We would see divine consciousness vibrating all over the place. Our eyes reduce consciousness into matter. Max Planck, one of the fathers of quantum mechanics and theoretical physics, he won a Nobel Prize, wrote and he said, you know, we always thought that consciousness was a derivative of matter. Today we know that matter is a derivative of consciousness, literally the language of Kabbalah. The more our eyes are developing the ability to be sensitive, the more we see how matter and consciousness are really all the same thing. It's all about commentary. It's all about the observer. It's all about what we're seeing. Gaula really means where we all come to the, not cerebral recognition, but the visceral recognition that we are all conduits of divine energy. We are all derivative of divine energy. We are infinite consciousness having a finite experience through our body. That 
experience is growing literally day by day by day. It's the source of healing. It's the source of oneness. It's the source of enlightenment. So when the Beis HaMikdash is built this time around, it's not going to be any more religious institutions and authority imposed from without. It's going to be humanity and the Jewish people from within radiating godliness, which is the most natural state of existence. Gula basically means goyla with an aleph. Goyla is exile. Gula is aleph in goyla. So the Medrash says in Emmer, Medrash Rambam, what is Gula? Gula basically means seeing the oneness in everything, seeing the oneness in my pain, seeing the oneness in my body, in my circumstances, in my life story. So essentially the work of Gula is the daily battle for transcendence, is the daily battle to be able to live with that oneness in our marriages, in our homes, in our families, in our relationships, in our communities. And that radiates to the countries, to the planet, to the entire cosmos. The Hasidic masters say, how will the wolf know to live with the lamb, to lay with the lamb? They're going to get their cues from people. <laughs> when we make peace between the animals inside of us, when we make peace between our amygdala, our reptilian brain, and our mammalian brain, and our prefrontal cortex, when we make peace between all the pieces in our own life, all the personalities inside of us that are killing each other, the animals are sensitive. They'll get the cue. They'll say, okay, we got it. It's time for peace. So the point, I think, is that Gula is a process that we are deep in middle of. And the process is continuing already for millennia, but now we are experiencing a certain consciousness that people are very, very open to, especially the youth. And that's why today, God is not something that can be coerced on people. Judaism can't be coerced. It's not working. It's not, it's not successful. Why not? So people say because the young people are spoiled, they're ratty, they're narcissistic. No, it's not. It's because they're seeking Gaula consciousness. They're seeking true enlightenment. They're seeking identification, not just coercion. They're seeking a relationship that is very, very deep and authentic. And it's a gift. And we all, adults, educators, mentors, rabbis, need to open themselves up to this gift, to this opportunity. There comes an era in history where people want Messiris Nefesh that permeates them through and through. It's not anymore renounce yourself for the sake of your grandfather's truth. Denounce yourself because this is what God wants. Gula means integration. It's what you also want. <laughs> it's not what my ego wants. It's not what my trauma wants. It's what my soul wants. So it's a whole new level of Messiris Nefesh. It's mysterious nefesh that your body and your soul embrace in many ways. That's a higher level of mysterious nefesh, and sometimes more difficult in its own unique genre. Anyway, I didn't choose to live in this generation. I don't think you did. So I don't know how would, I would have responded in other generations. I am in awe of our ancestors. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they did it. With so much pain and so much suffering. I don't know. Physical suffering. Forget about everything else physical torch, the abyss they faced. Wow. It, it's like we have to be in awe about the fact that we're here today. We are here today because their blood and their sweat and their tears. And now we ask ourselves, 
what's the next chapter that we're supposed to write. It's a continuation, but it's also new. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing with us your valuable wisdom, your ideas, your insights. Actually, at the beginning when you were talking, I'm so used to watching you on my screen. I've watched countless of your sessions. I almost forgot it was interactive. (laughs) (laughs) I tell my students that double speed was created for my share. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And in some cases, triple speed. (laughs) And thank you for bringing the past to the light for so many Jews. Thank you. Okay, so having heard such a beautiful explanation and insight into a period of history of Mesiris Nefesh, I'd like to end with one last point and perhaps bring it back to the situation that we are going through at the moment. The Western world has heroes, you know, people who potentially risk everything, but sometimes that is problematic. There is an article that I came across about a documentary called Walking into Thin Air, a true story about a group of men and women who go on an expedition to climb to the top of Mount Everest. A Japanese businesswoman, a pathologist, a mailman, and nine others who each paid $65,000 to realize the sort of the greatest dream of their life, stand on top of the earth. And, you know, they meet up with their guides and the rest of the expedition at the bottom of the mountain, and they're told there's Camp 1, Camp 2, Camp 3, Everest is 30,000 foot high. And at that point, the wind chill factor is 100 degrees below zero. And basically, you know, from camp three upwards, it's impossible to survive without oxygen. And one wrong step means death. So they have a a term there. Reaching the top of the mountain is called summiting. That's the goal. And 90% who set out don't summit. In fact, many of those who do don't come home anyway. And walking into thin air is a, a sad story because five of the climbers don't make it back basically because they think themselves to be invincible. Now, we sometimes look at people that attempt this climb as heroic. I mean, let's face it, they possess some of the, you know, loftiest attributes known to mankind. Perseverance, self-confidence, willpower, and a drive that's almost spiritual. Why do they climb that mountain, though? To undertake one of the most dangerous feats ever attempted by man... And why, when, for instance, the first person slipped and tumbled 10,000 feet into an ice gorge, why didn't they all turn back? When they reached Camp 3 and they saw evidence of of hundreds of years of people who died on the mountain, why did they keep on going? Because they need the satisfaction of touching the flagpole at the end. You know, maybe they'd end up on some uh, TV talk show. Now, determination and strong backbone can be the ingredient of true greatness, or it can be stupidity. It is foolish to risk harm to yourself or others in order to summit. When Korach and Moshe face off, Korach needed the positions of Moshe and Aaron. He needed to summit. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't need to summit because he had humility, and humility requires Messiris Nefesh. Acting with perseverance and courage and self-sacrifice doesn't necessarily mean acting with nobility. We can be driven, but to what end? We can persevere, but there has to be a just purpose. Heroism needs integrity in order to do simple things right. 
And it's often at times when the world rejects it, when the world scorns this old-fashioned nation. Standing up for Judaism, whether privately or in public, is the response to Yishmael. That makes it a way of life. How can one tell if one's doing it for you know, the right intentions? Because, of course, it's very meaningful and there's a major good feel factor when one steps over all one's boundaries. And let's say if one does loads of kindness... You know, of course, one thinks one has, you know, very moral ambitions, but possibly there's a major good feel factor as well. And it fills a person with meaning. No, So the fact that a person has a feel good factor just means that potentially, possibly, depending on the circumstances, it might be somewhat that doesn't invalidate it. But when the entire course of action is selfish and actually shouldn't be undertaken. They, as I mentioned earlier, you need to have an outside opinion who can advise you. And the outside opinion doesn't necessarily have to be somebody more learned than you, but more objective than you, in order to be able to know whether this entire course of action should be undertaken. We have, at the very beginning of our nation's history, Nachshem bin Aminodov, he's at the Yamsuf, and that first act of Klal Yisrael, almost, when we leave Egypt, is Mesiris Nefesh. He's prepared to give up his life. But Mesiris Nefesh is also seen in the act of Kolev, who stands up to the ten spies and defends Eretz Yisrael in a hostile atmosphere. When all is said and done, Mesiris Nefesh belongs in the most famous posuk that we have, the most famous verse, Shema Yisrael, to love Hashem, b'chol levavacha, nafshacha, and mo'idecha, which means that beyond nafshacha, beyond giving up your life, there is a realm called b'chol mo'idecha, which means b'chol midah or midah, in every situation in which you find yourself in, there is the potential for the Mesiris Nefesh of Yitzchok. Well, thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. That brings our three-part series to an end. I know it's not the probably the best time to celebrate, but just wanted to end off with another thank you to all our listeners who have joined us reliving history in these 100 episodes until now, especially those who have dedicated an episode for either a loved one or in honor of an event, and for the thousands of emails that we've received with constructive feedback or simply just to say thank you. And the only thing we can request in return is, obviously, after giving it a five-star feedback, send it out, share it, share it far and wide. Rabbi Hirsch does these podcasts to educate and to inspire. So the more people, the bigger the mission gets. So we could just ask, don't keep them to yourself. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch, and good night. Mm-hmm.